Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about faith. I know you are astonished. Two Lutheran theologians talking about faith. What has come over us? But we hope in this episode to bring new life and light to the topic of faith. Dad, um, I was really struck as we were uh, preparing for this and you shared your notes with me, how your particular interest in this, um, what we're going to talk about today, has to do with the elbowing out of theology from what has become religious studies. So I would like to hear more about that. But I just want to say briefly, I am more and more struck now that my ears are tuned more to um, maybe secular conversations, both on the one hand, how how narrow and ill-defined and ignorant the average non-religious person's understanding of what Christian faith is, um, which, you know, may be largely to blame on Christians for not doing it well or not expressing or describing it well, but also how absolutely universal and ubiquitous faith and belief language are even among the most rigidly self-proclaimed empiricist types, that actually there is no way you can have any kind of human discourse or knowledge or relationships without abundant measures of all the things we call faith, belief, trust, or whatever. So I think this is is weirdly everywhere and urgent and yet a kind of invisible topic. So I'm really excited to kind of peel back some of these layers and give more clarity to this, this nebulous thing that nevertheless we all live in the midst of all the time. Yeah, wow. That's a great introduction, Sarah. I just finished reading Teresa Morgan's impressive study. The title is Roman Faith and Christian Faith, and then the words in Greek pistos and in Latin fides in the early Roman Empire and early churches, published by Oxford in 2017. This is an incredible study, Sarah, because it actually kind of picks up on your observation here that there was a pre-existing lexicon of these terms, pistis and fetus, in Greek Greco-Roman civilization. And so she asks a a very basic kind of historical uh, critical question. What was the pre-understanding of this terminology? What what were the concepts of faith existing in the Greco-Roman world into which Christianity came? And, And learning about that then would allow you presumably to see how the early Christians' deployment of the lexicon of faith was innovative and different from the common usage. So, yes, the language of faith belief is ubiquitous also in our culture because you can't have any kind of conceivable uh, society at all without some basic norms of faith. So there is always going to be a pre-existing vocabulary uh, regarding faith. But in that, with that understanding, how is it and how unusual is it that the first Christians began to identify themselves as the believers, the believers, as picking out this very term in common usage and ascribing it to themselves as an act of self-identification, as if it separated them or distinguished them, at least, from the culture around them. 
So I think that that's a, that's a very insightful way of proceeding on this question. And I hope we can do that in this podcast. Yeah, that's really interesting because believer now is, is almost like an obnoxious term. But also, so uh, to give an example of what I was saying, I ran across something recently, some, some secular pundit saying something like, well, Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead and Hindus believe in reincarnation and they both, both can't be right. And, and the implication was that they're both probably wrong. But I was so struck that the this person who is, you know, an, an American and so like the the swirling um, background of Christianity is, is part of his culture and thought world, even though he doesn't know it. He just automatically posits that the same relationship to resurrection and reincarnation obtained for both Christians and Hindus. It's like a belief structure and that they both have it and that they're mutually exclusive. And therefore, you know, one religion has to be right. One has to be wrong. But in that very specific way, unless you opt out entirely, like he was claiming to do. And I just thought, I, hmm, I wonder if that's really the right verb to be using in both cases, or if that itself shows how how completely caught up the secular person is in Christian ideas about what religion is and indeed what believing is without even knowing it. And then somehow, but then ironically uses it to try to diss the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of my experiences as a teacher in a religion department for the last 22 years uh, at Roanoke College was that so many um, of the students, whether they were uh, serious Christians or indifferent Christians or nothing at all, uh, all assumed that they already knew all about Christianity. And so what a waste of, <laughs> but what a waste of time to ha try to study it academically uh, on the college level. Uh, usually, if they dared to take a class with me, I had disabused them of that naive assumption after the first lecture. Uh, right, anyway. but I'm, I'm sure they also thought, even the serious ones, well, like, if I believe it, then what is there left to do? You know, I've done the thing that it needs to be done. And, you know, I, in fact, that turns out, as I guess we're going to explore here, is a very distinctly Christian claim. But why would you even claim it? Why would a Christian say believing is sufficient? In fact, you need to study to find out why saying believing is is a sufficient and, and, and worthy descriptor of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, so that that's the, the, the primary question. Why is it that early Christians quite spontaneously began to identify themselves as, quote, the believers, end quote. We could give a lot of Bible proof texts for that, but I think it's pretty, it'll be pretty much taken for granted. And I say the process of de-Christianization in the West makes this historical question very timely. Also, if not especially in the... Um, in the colleges and universities. Um, and I think also for the churches, because evangelism strategies uh, in this time of declining Christendom have circulated around belonging rather than believing. Inclusiveness oh, right. yeah. is supposed to be the solution to the waning uh, n uh, um, uh, participation in the church. Um, and if we do youth programs that simply convince them that they are welcome in the church and they belong and they have a voice here and so forth, that they'll then become active uh, disciples. 
Well, I think the jig is up on all of that. Uh, just as for early Christians, it was believing that brought them in and made them belong uh, to the community called the Ecclesia, the church, uh, the body of Christ. It's going to be the same for us in the foreseeable future, I would say. Well, and also I'd just like to say that an ecclesiology that just defines people in and says that they belong and says that they're welcome, apart from anything like belief or commitment or discipleship, is actually an imperial act. I can't see that that actually is serving the interests of the, the inclusive and the inclusivity types tend to think that they're very anti-imperial. So I would encourage them to re-examine their ecclesiology and evangelism on those grounds. And again, I would say on a purely popular level, of course we want our congregations to be welcoming <laughs> to new people. You know, this is, the, but that's not the reason any person entering the doors of the church or entering into the fellowship of the church will actually commit and stay there. This is a question of belief. It is a community of faith. Now, in my 20 years, Sarah, at Roanoke College, I consistently advocated for the expansion of the religious studies program, understanding that it would be exposure to the world religions. And surely that's a necessity in today's increasingly global world. After 9-11, I looked at myself self-critically and said, you know, I don't know anything serious about Islam. And I threw myself into a two or three year intensive study of Islam just so that I would know what I would be talking about. And I think that it's very valuable, especially in a liberal arts uh, curriculum. And in all this, I never dreamed that the ascendancy of religious studies as a discipline within liberal arts education would come into conflict with the academic standing of Christian theology. But I was oh, wrong. Oh, Dad, you're so naive. I know. I am. I was very naive. I suppose it's because you were at a Lutheran college and you thought that, that theology would continue to have standing there, right? Right. And of course, I thought that I was making a good personal case for the academic credibility of Christian theology. But what I discovered was that as a discipline, religious studies today, and this is interesting, following in the train of William James, whom we discussed recently in an episode on pragmatism. Religious studies today, with varying degrees of militancy, tends to exclude theology as a discipline of inquiry. On the grounds, why? Now, why? On the grounds that concern with faith and questions of belief imposes a Christian category on other religions, which are better to be understood as social ritual behaviors organizing or making cohesive the existence of social groups. Well, but why would that affect the study of Christian theology itself? Couldn't you allow Christianity to do its own self-examination of itself, the way you'd presumably let other religions examine themselves as they wish to examine themselves? Of course, that was the argument that I was forced into making that you can have insider and outsider perspectives. But what I, I think even that's not a deep enough analysis. It's the very thought that faith and belief should be privileged, like your early, earlier illustration. 
Is the Hindu belief in reincarnation really comparable to the Christian belief in resurrection under the common category of belief? I mean, that's that that's a it's a subtle question. Maybe we can get into it, but let's let's just press on here, uh, because you know the irony is that the practitioners of religious studies do not hesitate to impose secular Western social sciences on other religions in order to understand them and take them seriously as rituals organizing social life. But let's let's leave that problem to but the Dad, side that, for that's, today. That's science. It's objective and universal. It does not import false values, but simply observes what is objectively there. Yeah, and that's the great conceit of the European Enlightenment, to have a universal perspective. Uh, we've already attacked that time and again on the podcast, so let's just move on. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But I, but I mean, I can, I can see that in the, the cultural climate that we're in, that if you're going to study religion at all, you have to articulate it as dis- detached and scientific, still under this Enlightenment fiction, and to allow any religion, well, really only Christianity, because Christianity is still culturally powerful in that respect in the West, to let Christianity speak in its own voice is going to look like special pleading or privileging or, you know, imperialism or whatever kind of thing. Like, I can see if you're already in this thought world, there's actually no way out. You're kind of stuck with heading down this direction. Well, the pioneers of religious studies in the 19th century committed exactly this offense, that they assumed that matters of faith and belief were as central to other religions as they are to Christianity. And then they did uh, teleological um, uh, or taxonomical orderings of the religions, going from the primitive animism to polytheism to monotheism to Christianity. And every, you know, the whole ladder finally ascended to Christianity as the perfect religion. Um, because its beliefs about God were supposedly the clearest, the lucid, and the most rational. And of course, as as people broke away from those paradigms of the 19th century, they realized that this was created by superimposing a Christian uh, privileging of faith and belief, uh, 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 even though people had long since given up on being Christian believers or theologians. Yeah, I can I can give one more example of this. Um, here in Japan, everywhere you go, there are religious sites, to use a not terribly helpful term. And um, the first year or so that we were here, every time we'd go to one, I would say, so is this Buddhist or Shinto? And after a while, I realized that this is not a useful question to ask because coming with my Western religious mindset, you are either a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim. You are not religiously, at least, more than one of those. By definition, you cannot religiously be more than one of those. And um, Messianic Jews may be being the one tiny exception, but even even how weird people are about Messianic Judaism, I think is proof that for the Western world, there are discrete borders between religions. But that is simply not the relationship that Shinto and Buddhism have to each other, to say nothing of Confucianism and Taoism somewhere in the backgrounds. So <laughs> they just... They're, right. they're both there. They're almost always on both sites. They have theories of 
that they were forced to develop of their relationship to each other, the Buddhist one being a little bit more articulate than the Shinto one. But even so, now that I have gotten over my need to distinguish and uh, separate as a Westerner, I still have to say at this point when people ask me, because I'm a missionary, you know, and I'm supposed to know about Japanese religions, I just have to say I am not sure that it's actually meaningful or helpful to use the word religion as we hear it and the connotations we get from it in English to talk about what the things called Buddhism and Shinto are. I just, I I can't be much more articulate than that, but somehow the, the cat, there's a category error at work there. And so the attempt to like compare, or even the idea that the, the best way to be a missionary here is to study Buddhism and Shinto, I'm less and less convinced that actually is all that meaningful. I'm sure I'd get lots of outraged responses from others, but Anyway, just just my <laughs> contribution to the problem of trying to use a Christian model to explain what we identify as religions in other parts of the world. That's really interesting, Sarah, and it will be interesting in the future to hear how your thinking matures on this as you continue to ponder the uh, <laughs> culture of Japan in which you're put. Um, I would just add to that uh, that among religious studies types, it's a very hot topic to look at syncretistic phenomena where, for example, in maybe in, in somewhere in India, Muslims and, and Hindus uh, uh, have a common holy place and make pilgrimages to a shrine to seek healing. And they can, at least in these gray zones, uh, set aside their... Um, identities as Hindu and Muslim and ritually interact. And so religious studies types are just really keen on finding that there's just this infinite spectrum of belief that um, goes from one shade of gray to the next. And so you can't really say there's any such thing as an intact or uh, self-perpetuating belief system. Uh, another nail in the coffin of that terrible imposition of theology on the empirical study of religions. Well, <laughs> yes. As I said, this study by Teresa Morgan, it's path breaking because painstakingly it teases out the pre understandings of faith in the Greco Roman world. And what she discovers there through this very careful study of the literature uh, in various dimensions is that the vocabulary and also the conceptuality of faith includes, now these are for her basic, first of all, the relational dimension of trust. Now, what does that mean? That means whenever I trust, I necessarily must relate my trust to something. I trust in Sarah to be ready for a podcast. I trust in, you know, you know who, your mother, right? I trust her to have dinner ready for me after this podcast is over. I trust your brother to help me building uh, benches for the new greenhouse. Uh, daily, he'll be there to help me get that finished. Uh, so always trust is relational because it's always trust in someone or in something. And now, and perhaps the primary meaning of faith is this kind of fiducia, to use the Lutheran medieval Latin term, fiducia, trust. But always, and at the same time, 
there's a cognitive dimension to trust. Namely, um, uh, the necessity of, of giving reasons why anyone in that relation of trust is found to be credible or trustworthy. Now, if I said to you, Sarah, uh, on the next podcast, I'm going to teach the audience how they can jump off of roofs and fly through the air. I doubt very much that you would trust me because you would immediately have a cognitive objection to my claim to teach people to levitate. And that would be that the forces of gravity would bring me crashing to the ground and anybody foolish enough to believe me. Indeed. I, uh, yes. If I did say, Sarah, I'll be prepared for our next recording of the podcast, I suspect you would say, yeah, that's credible. That's believable. He's got a good track record so far. <laughs> right? And right. so there would be, in both, both cases, there would be beliefs or disbeliefs, true, pragmatically justified beliefs about the credibility, the trustworthiness of anyone in whom you would invest trust. And so faith and belief always have these two dimensions, primarily relational, but implicitly always also cognitive. So just a quick question. Does this apply, you said, to someone or something? So would it be the same thing like, I trust that the sun will rise tomorrow morning and every morning after that? And then, you know, if I'm... um uh, if I'm a, an ancient Greek, I'm saying because Phoebus will rise with his chariot and fiery horses and, and haul the sun across the sky. And if I'm a modern person, I'll say it's because we live in a, a heliocentric universe. And even though I'm saying it's the sun rising, I know it's actually the earth turning. But either way, there's the cognitive dimension plus the, the trust. Like, I don't have to worry about the sun rising. I know that it's going to happen. Is Is that the same kind of thing? Or are we really specifically talking about interpersonal here? Uh, yeah, no. Let me try to answer according to her study of the Greco-Roman culture, because I think what she points out is that trust always has a undertone of riskiness to it. Um, and the, vocab the vocabulary of knowing, I think the Greek verb is nomitsane that she refers to, or uh, in Latin, what was the Latin word? Cognosco um, or something? Cognos yeah, cognos cognoscorate, right? Uh, the vocabulary for knowing is used for something about which one feels no riskiness, right? And so when you okay, engage okay. in act, when you engage in acts of trust, you prefer the vocabulary of credere in Latin to believe, or um, uh, pisteuen hoti in Greek, I to believe hoti, that something is the case, which in that usage, which is subtly distinguished from claiming to know something, is a way of indicating that belief uh, betrays a little element of riskiness. So, for example, then, a better example would be 
Andrew and I have been married nearly 20 years and we're happy together and faithful to each other. And so I I believe, I truly believe that we will continue in this way until death do us part. But I'm also not an, a, an idiot. And I realize that there are lots of marriages that fail even after 20 years and more. So there is always an element of risk, even being married to someone that you love and trust with your, your you know, your life and your being and your body. There's that. So it's not right. like I don't I don't know that we'll love each other and be faithful to death because that's not like the sun rising. But it is it is this um, deep conviction and yet acknowledging the element of risk. That's what makes it faith or believing. And that's why Morgan also brings out that both in the Greco-Roman world and also in the New Testament, faith is never fideistic. Faith is never faith in faith. Whenever one is willing to believe that something is true, they can give you good reasons for their belief, at least reasons to them which are good. So, uh, and I think that's really important because there has been a kind of uh, undertone of existentialist fideism, especially afflicting some forms of 20th century Lutheran theology. Or I even think of like, like if you look at um, sociological studies, they tend to show that religious believers have better like health and longevity outcomes. So you can imagine being told, well, you know, like you should believe in something because it's it's good for your health. But so that would be kind of a, a secularized faith in faith. But it, they would never presume to say, well, this is the religion you should believe in um, because of the reasons inherent to the religion itself. It would only be because faith itself is a beneficial quality. Sure. And and that's, you know, uh, uh, whatever gets you through the night, you know, that's kind of a secular wisdom. And I think Teresa Morgan's study would indicate that this question of good reasons for belief in the Greco-Roman world uh, is ne never takes on the form of any kind of formal we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There's nothing comparable to that at all. Uh, huh. And for reason, reasons that we'll get into. There's in some religious usage of notions of trust and belief in, in the polytheism of Greece and Rome. Uh, but these, she say, argues, she shows us, are never central. What is central are the concerns for the rituals, the traditional rituals, and their correct performances, the sacrifices and so forth that go on in the civic temples and also in the mystery religions that develop in the Hellenistic world. Um, so the, the religious studies scholars are right about that. For most of human religiosity, right, there is simply the the place of trust and belief is really kind of pervasive throughout culture. Uh, it applies to economics. It applies to to political relations between emperors and subjects, between uh, war parties, between the conquered and the conquerors. It applies to marriages, domestic relationships in the household. So the vocabulary of faith. Uh, is pervasive throughout the culture. Uh, it's never lifted up as something specifically or specially religious. That is very interesting. Okay. 
Now I get, I, I, I get why this is so startling now. Wow. So like a Kratos is a weird outburst manifested Christian genre that doesn't make sense in terms of the categories of general belief or other religions. Yeah. And of course, you'll remember that in my book, Divine Complexity, I traced that Kratos back to the initiation rite of baptism. Uh, the early church's practice of baptism had to do with the renunciation of Satan and his pomp and wicked works, and it had to do with a corresponding affirmation of the, of the uh, triune God of the gospel. So, okay, so she finds, Morgan finds that this customary deployment of the lexicon of faith in the Greco-Roman world is transformed with Christianity. You know, she observes a number of transformations. Allow me to list them. First, the lexicon of faith is drastically restricted, and it is applied strictly to God, and therewith is uh, uh, removed from intrahuman or intracosmic concerns. And there, within the human world or in the natural world, its ethical place is taken by agape love. Now just think about that for a minute. Faith is assigned strictly to the relationship with the God of the gospel and being removed from uh, the human and natural world uh, as its proper location, because faith belongs to God alone, it is the, replaced there by the corresponding Christian notion of agape love. What a remarkable transformation culturally that is. In other words, if I can put it in a nutshell, loyalty to one's own is corrected and sanctified by agape love for the other, even the enemy. Just because faith is exclusively assigned to the God of the gospel. So is it like the idea that if you you don't need your social relationships to depend on trust and reliability, because obviously that's going to fail, but all of your your trust and faith are directed towards God, then you have new options for how you relate to other people because you don't have to restrict to those who you can get exactly what you need back from them? Is that the idea? I think that's exactly the idea because think about what happens to those human social relationships when, um, when we invest the faith which belongs only in God into them. Uh, we overload them. We utterly overload them. They can't bear that. And, you know, you see that in the phenomenon, uh, in domestic phenomenons of jealousy, in economic phenomenons of greed and envy, uh, in a political phenomenon uh, uh, of, of, of diplomacy uh, and warfare and so forth. The way I the way I, I have uh, put this in my own mind, and this makes perfect sense now, is that you can't have creation without redemption, because without re re redemption, creation becomes the absolute good, and making creation into an absolute good destroys the created goods themselves. You can you can only value them properly if they're penultimate, like Bonhoeffer would say, not if they're ultimate. And that's why there is a, a direct, and it, it, it is in fact 
creation that is redeemed. So any kind of theology that tries to fall only on a creation side or only on a redemption side, and we certainly see both of those in, in various kinds of Christian theology and practice, they're both doomed to fail because they're, they're uh, yeah, over-elevating or under-elevating the created world. Yeah, Augustine's distinction uh, has come under a lot of attack between frui, to enjoy, and uti, to use. And, and that's how he parses the relationships between penultimate creational goods and ultimate uh, 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 salvation goods. You are to enjoy God alone and all creatures you are merely to use. And people have found that to be a kind of a devaluation of the creaturely realm. But Augustine uh, is thinking that creatures can only truly be enjoyed when they are enjoyed in and under God, because then your joy uh, is in God the giver, and that includes um, a joyful reception of the gifts, so long as you do not use the gifts in place of the enjoyment that belongs to God alone. So something like that, I think, is... uh, of course, Augustine's responding to this Greco-Roman culture now 400 years later in its decline. Well, let's go on. Second, okay. Morgan finds that the relational dimension of, of trust or being found trustworthy is the predominant meaning of early Christian faith, which at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, always implicitly and increasingly with time, explicitly entails the articulation of certain matters of true belief about who is found trustworthy and on what grounds. And these are the credo, the articles of faith, which cognitively identify the God of the gospel in distinction from idols and demons. So, that yeah, unpack is, I think, that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for Lutherans, this should ring joyfully upon their ears because for four or 500 years, we've been saying the basic meaning of faith is fiducia. It's this heartfelt trust in the God who meets us in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Uh, um, but in much of modern theology, uh, fiducia and what in Latin is called notitia, knowledge, have been kind of polarized against each other. Now, it was Augustine who made the classical distinction between the faith which is believed, fetus quae creditur, and the faith by which one believes, fetus qua creditor. Uh, it's a subtle grammatical distinction in Latin, but the the point is there's a faith which is content, which is what one believes, and there's a faith uh, which is a relational act of human trust. And Augustine distinguished these, I think, not in order to separate them, but in order to acquire clarity about discussing faith. In what respect are you talking about faith? That's what analytical distinctions are good for, for breaking things down so that we don't confuse questions. 
Now, for Morgan, on the other hand, it's a debilitating error if this distinction becomes a separation in which the primacy of trust, of social trust, and by implication the necessity of articulation uh, as giving reasons for trust, if those are obscured or overlooked. So I think Morgan, you know, tends a little bit unfairly to blame Augustine, who merely made a distinction, not a separation. Uh, I think the better explanation for the separation has much more to do with the rise of modern epistemology and idealistic philosophy, which separated these two dimensions of faith into fundamentalism on the one side and fideism on the other, or existentialism on the other. So take your pick. Do you want to be a fideist who takes takes leaps in the dark, not knowing to whose voice it is responding when it jumps from the flaming roof into the dark night sky? Do you want to be a fideist who doesn't know what, who or what one believes? Or do you want to be a fundamentalist, an orthodox uh, ogre, who's attacking all those deviators who don't hold to the one true faith. And so this characteristic polarization between fundamentalism and fideism uh, is certainly true of our contemporary Western cultural world. Uh, And I think she's exposed uh, that at the root of the Christian faith, any such separation is is a degeneration. Yeah, well, I mean, I think to to pick up on my example from earlier to see why trust and content have to go together. So I'm married to a husband that I love and trust totally. And let's say there's another woman who's married to a husband she trusts and loves totally. And we both have this experience of trust and love. So she proposes to me, well, we can just sub out husbands then. How about I have yours for a while and you take mine? Because what matters is the love and trust. And I can assure you that he is a totally lovable and trustworthy man. And you say that yours is. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we automatically know that that is deeply, deeply messed up and wrong. Like the, the love and trust in my case is attached to a very specific content of this particular person and no other, no other husband. So I think, you know, you can oh, easily you... see this same thing. What you... are you going to say, Dad? You old-fashioned girl, you, aren't you in touch with polyamory and open marriages? Okay, let's go on. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's of course the same thing for, for your religious faith, because you can have faith in God, and then if it turns out that God is nothing like what you thought, or the story is true, like if, if you know, um, to, to use this as a totally counterfactual, but, you know, if I uh, wake up from my death and discover that the God that I meet there is not the God of the gospel, is not the one who became incarnate in Christ and died and rose again for my sins and has a very different agenda to be pursuing, it's not like it's just going to transfer, like, because I have the habit of believing in God. <laughs> if if God turns out to be totally other than the God that I've come to love and trust, I, I, I can't make that switch. It's just not going to happen. So th- there's a reason why the the feeling as we, you know, or feeling trust, whatever, and the content have a necessary relationship to each other let, that you said like, you can analytically distinguish between, but you obviously cannot separate and still have the same thing happening. I think it's an analytical distinction within the gospel religion of Christianity. 
I don't think the distinction finds much support otherwise. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, religious phenomenon today in which the question of the content of the faith is, is almost irrelevant or immaterial. Uh, what is the number one driver of religious uh, 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 associations right now in our culture is well, how it makes me feel, how it gets me through the night, how it helps me cope, and so forth and so on. So I think that we have to be a, a little bit aware that if we insist that the content of faith is important, we are in fact articulating something about Christianity. Do you, can I just ask quickly, do you think that same basic distinction, analytic distinction, obtains in Judaism and Islam as well? I mean, is this a, a Western religions of the book versus other religions, and it's classical versions of religion versus con contemporary sociological realities? I think, yeah, and that's a really uh, difficult and in some respects painful question, because what I'm going to say now the next discovery that Morgan makes is that uh, the primacy of trust in primitive Christianity is articulated Christologically. Uh, now, just let's okay. think about this for a minute. The primacy of trust is articulated Christologically. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But just quickly to Islam and Judaism, it's of course, from the time of the consolidation of rabbinic Judaism at the end of the first common century, one of the things that made Judaism, normative Judaism, normative Judaism, was the rejection of the Christological claim of those who were the believers in the gospel. And I think seven centuries later, you have to say the same thing about Islam. One of the things that makes the faithful uh, of Muhammad faithful is they reject the Christological claim of the early Christians. Now, that's quite explicit. Uh, so whatever else they affirm, you know, and how they go about affirming that, there are a lot of Muslim and Jewish thinkers who will tell you that Judaism and Islam are not uh, dogmas the way that Christianity is. Uh, they are much more praxis, uh, orthopraxis. They have a dogma for Israel, the Shema, um, uh, for uh, Islam, the, um, the Islamic credo, there is no God but one and Muhammad is his prophet, right? But it's compared to Christianity, these are really quite minimalistic dogmas. So let's just leave that question aside. I want to okay. go on to how Morgan discovers the Christological articulation okay. of trust. Okay. That happens when an understanding of the faithfulness or faith of Jesus Christ is seen in its multiple relational dimensions, inclusive, of course, of eliciting personal faith. Let me unpack that. There's some kind of narrative, gospel narrative of Jesus Christ, which shows him in multiple relations, 
including the relationship of eliciting or creating personal faith uh, that um, uh, is central to Christianity. Now, we're going to talk about this question of the pistis Christo, the faith of or faithfulness of Christ, in our next episode. But I will suggest then that this discovery of the Christological articulation of primitive Christian faith helps to clarify the rise of creedal Christianity. But that's for next time. What her, what her careful study, particularly in Galatians, Romans, and Philippians, shows, because she has done a study of the Corinthian correspondence in First Thessalonians, to show that Paul has kind of a conventional uh, discussion of faith, uh, just like we find in Acts or Hebrews or other New Testament places or the Synoptic Gospels for that matter. But it's in the, uh, it's in the controversy about justification, which centers in Galatians, Romans, and Philippians, that uh, Paul develops a mediating model. Now, here I'm quoting her directly, of Jesus as doubly faithful to and trusted by God and by humanity to explain how his death and resurrection save those believing from their sins. End quote. In other words, the faith faithfulness of Jesus was simultaneously his trusting obedience to God who sent him on that path to an excruciating death and therewith also his loving loyalty to the sinners whose sins he had forgiven in life and whose sin he had taken upon himself in death. So Jesus shows this, this social trust, loyalty, faithfulness, toward God and towards sinners. That's what makes him the mediator. And then actually the, the resurrection is the father's declaration, I find you trustworthy. So he, he's confirming Jesus' trustworthiness. And then, so then the kind of like on the, the opposite extreme, us on the other side of Jesus, we we find Jesus trustworthy and therefore place our, our faith and trust in him. So there's almost like a, from totally different directions, but a parallel movement of trust from the Heavenly Father and from sinners towards Jesus Christ in the center. Is that right? Absolutely. Exactly right. And it, is, it radiates, radiates out from that center. And that's why she describes it as a social trust or a social bond of trust or a bond of trust creating a new kind of a association or affiliation or or society even, right? And and to fill it in Trinitarianly, then that would actually be the work of the Holy Spirit, which which um, reconciles Father and Son, not identically, but in a parallel way to how the Spirit reconciles Christ and sinners or something, something like that. I, I, I would say so. I think it's one of the weaknesses of her book that she does not really develop much the relationship of the Holy Spirit to faith. Well, we can hardly blame her for that when theologians forget the Holy Spirit all the time, too. <laughs> yeah, uh, she uh, she acknowledges at the end of the at the end of the book that this was a, a this was a um, a failure of her book or an omission that needs to be remedied. 
So presumably she's working on this question. But I want to point out before we go on from this, she also insists that God the Father trusts, indeed trusts radically, and trusts his own fatherhood to the beloved son's faithful course, even to death on a cross. And like then, just as you said, vindicates their mutual relationship of trust by his resurrection, uh, which is also his exaltation and so forth. So resurrection as vindication, as, as the vindication of these relationships of trust. Yeah, you know, actually, that really strikes me because a huge aspect of social trust is reputation. And there is a very profound theme throughout the Old Testament of the Lord God of Israel's reputation, both to Israel and among the nations. So, for instance, when the golden calf episode happens in the wilderness and God is ready to wipe out all the people he's just rescued, Moses' argument is, you know what this will do for your reputation? The Egyptians will say, <laughs> you lured us out just to kill us. And so the Lord and, and the whole dilemma that the Lord goes through the entire book of the Old Testament or the you know, books of the Old Testament is that I have chosen you, I have blessed you, but you do evil. What is this doing to my reputation? How can I both, you know, be the God of justice and be affiliated with such rotten people like you? So there's like this yeah. constant issue of the social trust of the Lord uh, to the, the the witness of the wider world. So that would make so much sense if then, as you said, um, that God entrusts the reputation of his fatherhood to his son who goes and gets himself crucified, which is the worst possible way and most shameful possible way to die. And yet in the end, vindicates both the son. But I guess in what you're saying, then it also vindicates his fatherhood and his social trustworthiness as father, not only to Jesus, but to all of Jesus' brothers and sisters through faith. Yeah, I think that's right. If the resurrection is a vindication, uh, a multilateral vindication, a vindication of Jesus, a vindication of God the Father who sent them, a vindication of the sinners for whom Jesus lived and died and who now put their trust in him, a vindication of the Spirit uh, who works uh, this social new creation, social bond of trust, the new covenant community, the gospel is a proclamation of this event of divine victory uh, for us, which consequently elicits a new community founded specifically and exclusively upon this multilateral trust, this trust running in all these different directions. And that's Morgan's magnificent conclusion. The Christian faith, therefore, is a social faith as I might say, the faith of the beloved community, structured and constituted in these new bonds of trust. To go back to what you said earlier about trust being only for God or faith being only for God and, and love for the neighbor, it sounds like then if the conclusion is that it's this community of multilateral trust, it must imply that there is sufficient social trust within the Christian community to risk reaching out to the untrustworthy. <laughs> that would be the, the agape love that's risking going beyond the reliable bounds of the community with the hope of bringing people in and, and making them worthy, trustworthy in some way. How, how does that, I mean, I'm just trying to put together the, the earlier distinction between trust towards God, faith towards God, and love towards the community with this multilateral trust that we reach at the end. 
Yeah, I think you've, that's very good. And it brings out a, a fact that I haven't really discussed much, but it's very much there in the book. Uh, she talks about the way in which uh, faith, faith, trust and trustworthiness cascades down from God uh, th through Christ and then through the apostles and their uh, the deacons that, who serve them and so forth. And she points out how the language of pistos, the adjective faithful, is constantly used in the New Testament literature to describe apostles and uh, workers in the church. Faithful this one, faithful that one, um, faithful worker, faithful uh, deacon, so forth. And so there, there is this ascription of trustworthiness uh, to the heralds of the gospel. And she has a very interesting section discussing the Corinthian correspondence where Paul is uh, acutely aware that the gospel depends upon preachers and their proclamation of God's good news and how vulnerable that is to sophists, to uh, uh, mis uh, abusers of rhetoric and so forth and so on, the super apostles of the second Corinthians. So the issue of who is a faithful communicator of the gospel has to naturally arise from this vulnerability of the whole Christian project depending on God the Father's Easter declaration communicated by the apostles through their preaching and then handed on through faithful followers uh, down through the generations. So I, I'm, she's a Brit. She's probably thinking in the background of apostolic succession. <laughs> At least that's the, that's what I thought of as I was reading this. I, I think this really connects, though, to things we've talked about in terms of, of um, Christian practice, because on the one hand, we've said uh, we endorse the double standard for, for pastors, for clergy, because you are the you have authority, you have power, you have to be the trustworthy, faithful representative of the gospel. And sorry, that's part of part of the business is having to have that exceptional faithfulness. On the other hand, you absolutely have to exercise your Christian communal life together in such a way that you let sinners in and you bear with them and you figure out how to reach out to them, uh, whether they're hostile or resistant or or what, to figure out how to manage them within the congregation and to not try to aspire to a congregation of perfect purity and faithfulness, but actually a congregation that can that has the strength, let's say, to tolerate, um, you know, at times very grave sins, uh, not in the sense of blessing them, but like that's that's what the community exists for, to bring the sinners in. And I think there's a lot of times that, again, from the outside, people are kind of disgusted when they look at congregations because they don't look particularly holy or advanced in their spirituality. But I think the, the answer here would be yes. <laughs> That's why we have congregations, in order to be places for people who are not advanced in holiness or spirituality to be exposed to the truly Holy Spirit that can do the work of transformation upon them. But you do need also the, the faithful leaders, deacons, etc., that you were mentioning who can make sure that it is actually the Holy Spirit whose work is being done and not some other spirit who's being done. So that would say that the the conflicted life of the Christian church, which we've spent so much time discussing, is actually 
a part and parcel expression of its very project. Is that, do you think that's fair to say? I, you know, not speaking for Teresa Morgan, but for myself, yes, Sarah, that's very much what I think is we, we need to be saying here. Um, but of course, for the early church, it took um, centuries, including something as difficult as the Donatist controversy that ran on for several hundred years uh, to kind of get some clarity on the fact that the church is a hospital for sinner sinners, not a fortress for saints, uh, uh, at least in the popular understanding of those two terms, mm. right? Mm. Right, um, right. So I, I just, I think we can wrap this up so far as Teresa Morgan can take us just by concluding with the question about the rise of creedal Christianity. Because, Sarah, what you just articulated in the sense of being merciful uh, to immature, uh, weak, sinful uh, outsiders, newcomers, uh, who may have been in the church for actually for many, many years already, yeah. <laughs> uh, as every pastor knows, right? Uh, when you when you think about this, um, the point then is to ask, how did it arise that believing that God is one, God is triune, Jesus is true God and true human, etc. How did believing that uh, eclipse these fundamental relationships of trust? That's the question Teresa Morgan poses at the end of her book. And I think that uh, the answer to that question uh, is what she has discovered. If the authentic multilateral new community of trust articulated Christologically uh, is what that primacy of faith is all about in early Christianity, what threatens to undermine its very life precarious as it is in the surrounding hostile world, would be the rise of teaching that's claiming to be faithful, but saying something like, Jesus was pure spirit, not flesh at all, who really didn't die on the cross as a result. Or further, that his resurrection has already happened when the spirit Jesus left behind the flesh of Jesus. And imitators of Jesus do the same today, leaving their flesh behind to fly up into some heaven. If you start teaching like that and claiming to be a faithful uh, uh, transmitter of the gospel, what becomes of the faith faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in that mm. case? Right, right. Yeah, the belief the belief's implicit in the early Christian gospel, aimed at soliciting a new and exclusive trust in the God of the gospel, these must now be articulated, creedalized, put in the form of a creed, and maintained to identify teachers who are actually faithful to the gospel. I think, I wish Teresa Morgan had read my book, Divine Complexity, because it would have helped her answer the question that she posed at the end of her book. 
Well, I think you should send her a fan letter with a copy. But I, I guess what <laughs> you're saying, though, is is the false teaching is actually teaching a riskless Christ, a Christ who took no risks because he was only spirit. And therefore, it's that's why it's like not Gnosticism, right? Knowledge. It's not faith anymore because there's no risk. And so by definition, if you have a riskless Christ, you can have knowledge about him, but you can't really have faith in him. And therefore all the other goods that come with it are lost. So I think like in our culture, it's really easy to see how, how content of faith that does not issue in social love and trust is bad, you know, like you're the caricature of the of the fundamentalist or the hyper orthodox who bangs on about the propositions of the faith but despises all his brothers and sisters. But I think the what she's pointing out is that actually you don't get the positive good of the social trust and the love of the community and the reaching out to the lost and unworthy unless you also have the content about Christ who took the risk and put his body on the line and was vindicated by God for it, right? So there, there's a, the relationship goes both ways. That's how I read the book, you know, and uh, I think for our listeners, uh, that's a pretty good takeaway. Okay. I just want to ask one more question then to conclude this is, if this is in fact the case, that this emphasis on faith is so distinctly Christian, what do you see as being the the proper academic outcome for the study of both Christianity and the other things that we call world religions, whether that's a good term or not? Well, wow. Um, I think the churches need to wake up and realize that anything but the Christian faith, in the way we've discussed it in this podcast, anything but the Christian faith is being taught in the academy today. We just need to wake up to that. We need to realize that. It's part of de-Christianization. It's part of the collapse of Christendom. No one is going to care about, let alone teach the Christian faith, but the churches themselves. The churches have to do this uh, if it's going to be done at all. And the illusion that you can repopulate the churches with strategies for getting people in by making the church user-friendly is just that, an illusion. You might be able to um, manufacture a little bit of the religion business that way, but you're never going to create a a community of the gospel. So that's interesting because then that suggests that the academy is, is refusing to accept Christianity on its own grounds anyway. So it's academically dishonest, but that's, that's the state of affairs. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing and I'm sure there are still academic institutions in which Christianity can be uh, uh, believed, confessed and uh, taught Uh, in public. Uh, But it's becoming increasingly rare. Okay. Well, that that is much food for thought. So, well, we are then going to take what we have learned from Teresa Morgan and our discussion here today. And next time on the show, we are going to be talking justification by faith revisited. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.